If you could describe what last year was like for you in one word, what would you say? For many of us, and for all sorts of reasons, 2020 was a year we may want to forget, but it's a year that may stay with us for the rest of our lives. It was certainly for everyone in one way or another. The year of suspended plans, challenges and surprises with many twists and turns. And without trying to say this too lightly, last year also brought with it a whole host of disappointing outcomes for many of us. Outcomes that may have left lingering effects into our lives, even to today, in 2021. Could you relate to any of these experiences from this past year? Watching kids at athletic competitions waving at one another from afar instead of shaking hands with their opponents after the game. Or how weird was it that the morning routines consisted of grabbing your keys, snagging your wallet or purse, and then running back inside to find your fashionable face diaper or your mask, to be more proper, before leaving the house each day? Or what about the strange phenomenon of encountering one of life's most intimate and sobering moments on an impersonal screen? Thousands upon thousands of people around the world viewed funerals of all things, of loved ones or friends of loved ones from their living rooms on their laptops and iPads. And not to mention, what about the untold number of congregations around the world that were trying to do church in their virtual sanctuary that many tried to experience on the now infamous Zoom 2020 was certainly an unpredictable year, to say the least. But 2020 may also go down as the year that the Lord has brought an embarrassing indictment upon some so-called preachers of the gospel. A humiliating exposure on some false teachers here, right here in the United States, who preach a misleading message about Christianity. A message that so many people have believed for so long that is cloaked with biblical language, but is really no gospel at all. This repackaged message has been more commonly critiqued as the health and wealth prosperity gospel, or the name it, claim it doctrine, or little God's theology. One of these men that were clearly exposed last year was a man named Kenneth Copeland. On March 30th, 2020, Texas-based prosperity preacher and tele-evangelist Kenneth Copeland called forth a, quote, supernatural heat wave to kill the new coronavirus in New York City and, quote, the rest of the world where it's needed, end quote, he declared. He continued in his so-called sermon and virus-destroying prophecy by looking at the camera and blowing COVID-19 out of human existence. Yes, Mr. Copeland, in his suit and tie, inhaled and exhaled on live television and Facebook Live, declaring the destruction of this worldwide virus that has affected so many lives. In case you missed it, here's one of the many things he prayed and prophesied about that night. Quote, wind, almighty strong south wind, heat, burn this thing in the name of Jesus. Satan, you bow your knees. You fall on your face, COVID-19. I didn't know you could talk to a virus. I blow the wind of God on you. You are destroyed forever and you will never be back. Thank you, Lord God. He would then go on to loudly execute judgment on COVID-19. He even
even shouted multiple times, quote, it is finished, it is over, and the United States of America is healed and well again. Well, it's April 2021, and the spikes our country faced with the virus were only beginning in March of last year and continued to increase into the summer months while a record high of cases stared us in the face in the winter months to follow. Well, you already know how this all panned out. I don't need to read us the statistics. Many lives were turned upside down. Churches not able to meet for months on end. Countless jobs were either lost or people's job hours and salaries were cut in half and negatively affected. Fear, anxiety, and depression continued to escalate, and many, sadly, even lost their lives. So was the COVID-19 virus blown away and burned out of existence last March, as Mr. Copeland confidently declared? (laughs) Not even close. You see, Mr. Clopin is a clear example of someone who claims to speak on behalf of God, like a prophet. But obviously, God was not speaking to him. There might have been a spirit speaking to Mr. Copeland, but it's not the Holy Spirit. His words fell to the ground as quickly as they came out of his mouth. Friends, false teachers boast of false promises that lead to false hopes, which ultimately lead scores of people down the dark and slippery road of having false assurances. And unless God raises up a true prophet with a true message from God, we all remain hopeless. In order for any of us to have true and lasting hope, a hope that's actually built on something that will last, we need a message that tells us the truth about God. We need a message of truth that tells us the truth about ourselves. Otherwise, we'll just remain self-deceived and condemned in our sin. You know, making a promise is one thing. But keeping a promise is another. Making a prediction of what will happen in the future is one thing. And giving 100% certainty that it will happen is quite another feat. Predictions and promises that are filled with high hopes can only bring us good news if those promises are coming from a source that's trustworthy. So regardless of how your year in 2020 went for you or how 2021 is going for you today, let's just all get honest. All of us want to hear good news. And friends, that's what we're going to center our time around this morning in God's word. Good news that has come from our good God. This morning, we'll begin a new sermon series. Lily Kate will probably be 25 by the time we finish it. Nope, just kidding. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1. If you're using the chair Bibles provided, that should be found on page 488. Mark chapter 1. As you're turning there, to give you a little background to this gospel, because when you study a book of the Bible, you need to understand when it was written, why it was written, to whom it was written, and what on earth is going on in that particular setting. Church history almost unanimously credits Mark, or John Mark, as he is referred to in the book of Acts, as the human author of this gospel. Uh, Mark wrote this gospel to a largely Gentile Christian audience, most likely Christians living in Rome. Historical sources place the Gospel of Mark as being written sometime in the early to mid, late, or late uh, 50s AD, 
or even up to the early or mid-60s A.D. Uh, Either way, whichever date you land on, the Gospel of Mark is the earliest written gospel, and it was only within 30 years after Jesus got up from the dead. Unlike the other gospel writers, Matthew and John, Mark wasn't one of the original 12 disciples. However, he was a ministry companion of the Apostle Paul and a really good friend of the Apostle Peter. In fact, Peter, in his letter, in 1 Peter 5, verse 13, calls Mark his son, a term of endearment. Mark meant something to Peter. And Peter is primarily where Mark got his sources, his teachings, his insights, and the stories into Jesus' life. Mark is mentioned in the book of Acts, so if you ever want to do a character study, you can read the book of Acts and just type in Mark or John Mark, and you'll usually see him connected with Barnabas. Barnabas was his cousin, and they did life and ministry together. But he was also found with Paul. There was a dispute early on that Paul had with Barnabas about Mark's aptitude for ministry in the future. We know by the end of really Paul's life and ministry, when you read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he wants Mark to come visit him for he is very useful to me for ministry, Paul says. The gospel of Mark is presented to us as one of the four gospels in our New Testament. The synoptic gospels, as they are commonly referred to, are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they are eyewitness accounts, historical eyewitness accounts, and or carefully recorded narratives of those who knew Jesus personally and his life and ministry and other things that he wanted them to know. A synoptic just means seeing together. In other words, when you put these gospel accounts together, there are many stories that are very similar. However, if you read them closely, as we'll be doing in the Gospel of Mark, there are some unique differences. They aren't contradictions, but they're an eyewitness testimony of another or written accounts that will complement other gospel writers. Uh, John's gospel somewhat stands alone compared to the other three. Uh, John's gospel is like the Mount Everest of Christology. It is heavy. It is dense. John wants to take us really high and really deep with the the deity of Jesus. So let me give you a few examples. Uh, Where Matthew and Luke record genealogies of Jesus, stretching back to Abraham and even Adam, John's gospel opens up with the eternal existence of the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. However, Mark's gospel is different from both of those. It contains no genealogy of Jesus. And in fact, it doesn't spend any time on the events surrounding the birth or the childhood of Jesus like Matthew and Luke do. Though there are certainly similarities, as I've already mentioned, Mark's gospel has a a very different feel altogether. Its narration landscape just feels different when you read it. You'll notice this by quickly comparing it with the others. So you'll be thinking, Blake, why are we studying Mark and not Matthew or Luke? I mean, isn't it kind of an order? Well, not exactly. I partly picked it because it's shorter than the other gospel writers. And you'll notice that quickly, Mark's gospel is shorter. In fact, one of the things you'll pick up, though, on Mark as that he's kind of wanting to keep, keep the story going. He's somewhat in a hurry at times when he's writing. You'll notice the word immediately will pop up in our English translations over 40 times in his gospel. Now look down quickly with me just to uh, uh, live out what Mark's saying. Immediately, we're going to look together. Mark 1, verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Mark 1, verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Mark 1, verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then Mark 1, verse 21, and they went into Capernaum and immediately, so forth and so on. That word immediately is not hard to understand. In the Greek, it just simply means at once or without delay. 
In other words, Paul, Mark is wanting to emphasize in his gospel uh, somewhat like a fast-paced narrative, almost like a museum tour guide that says, yes, hey, look at this. Okay, great. Let's just keep it moving. He's walking through, giving more details than some gospel writers on some accounts and less details at times than others. Additionally, Mark's gospel doesn't focus as much on all the teachings of Jesus as the other gospel writers do, but he does focus a lot on Jesus himself, the person, the humanity of Christ, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And in fact, Mark will spend the last five or six chapters on the last week of Jesus's life. So friends, in this opening introduction, this prologue to this gospel, Mark does something a little different, that he opens up this book with a prophecy or a promise that God had made a long time ago to his people, a prophecy they had been waiting a long time for, for its fulfillment. It's an ancient prophecy that will beautifully link together some of the greatest acts of God's deliverance in the Old Testament with the fulfillment of a much greater act of deliverance in the New Testament age. You see, for centuries, God's people were waiting to hear once again from their promise keeping God. Are you waiting on something to happen in your life? Is there some good thing that you are hoping will come to pass? How long have you been waiting for it? Three weeks? Three minutes? After nearly 400 years of silence, God finally spoke again. The loudspeakers in heaven were turned up. And the decibels of God's voice sounded forth from heaven once again. As he had done so many times in ages past, God would speak through a prophet, a messenger, a voice who would be heard in a very familiar setting for the people of Israel. The wilderness. A rugged and rough terrain. An all too familiar place where the Israelites in multiple locations had seen and heard God's acts of deliverance. His powerful acts of salvation in their life in generations past. You see, God would be true to his word because what God promises and what he says he will do, he will bring to pass. He would speak to his people good news. Good news that resounded forth from ancient prophecies that had been, well, delayed for quite some time. This long period of silence, for those of you who are little Bible nerds, or the intertestamental period, between the last prophecy God would make through his messenger Malachi. So last fall, if you were here, we were studying through what Old Testament prophet? Malachi. The last time Israel, God's people, had heard a prophecy come from the lips of one of his messengers was Malachi. In 400 years, until we get to the opening pages of the Synoptic Gospels. You see, throughout these centuries, the faithful remnant of Israel had reminded one another of God's deliverance, the Exodus, and Egypt. And they had recalled the stories of the exiles, where God in judgment exiled them to Assyria and Babylon, but would bring a faithful remnant back. But you see, the hopes of God's people to see a restored nation dwelling securely in their own land, had been put on hold longer than any Verizon receptionist can when you're trying to pay a bill. 
the promises of seeing a faithful covenant community who actually loved God because their, his law was written on their hearts, that had not come to pass. The hopes of finally serving this victorious Davidic king who would sit on the throne of David, whose kingdom would endure forever, still had not happened. They were still waiting for the one who would tenderly and courageously shepherd the scattered sheep of God's flock and give them rest and peace for their souls. That is, until God, in his own timing, and in the way he had sovereignly ordained, opened up the windows of heaven and spoke once again through his prophet. A spokesman with heaven's authority. A preacher, not with some seminary diploma, but a preacher with God's stamp of approval. One who would stand on behalf of God and fulfill the long-awaited promise of a messenger that would prepare the way for the long-awaited Messiah. The divinely anointed deliverer who would save his people from their enemies and would save them ultimately from a dark enemy, their sin. The one who would give light to those who sit in darkness. The savior of the world, the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who grants forgiveness of sins and eternal life if you put your trust in him. This is the one Mark describes in the opening chapter of his gospel. Jesus of Nazareth, who is also the Son of God. So if you're someone here this morning, and you have been pining and looking for good news. Well, I hope that today as we crack open this book and throughout our time in this gospel, you and I will be amazed at the good news God has already given us through his son. Follow with me as we read this opening introduction to Mark's gospel starting in verse 1. Mark 1, verses 1 to 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I have one kind of main idea, and I'll unfold it with a very brief outline to follow. Here's your main idea. Salvation from God comes through Jesus Christ to those who receive him by faith with humble and repentant hearts. Salvation from God comes through Jesus Christ to those who receive him by faith with humble and repentant hearts. 
The outline will be similar to last week's in the form of a, almost like a catechism question format, a little more easy to remember. Number one, what is salvation? Number two, who are those with humble and repentant hearts? So number one, what is salvation? We throw that word around all the time, right? As Alan uh, introduced us to church life, we need to be honest and see this as a safe place. And we throw out words like love and grace and mercy and salvation and justification, yada, yada, yada. We ought to be able to define words that we're trying to teach each other. Salvation is God's powerful and merciful choice to deliver or rescue, those words could be interchangeable, a person or group of people from some type of captivity or impending danger. Earlier in the service, Alan Williams read a portion of Scripture from Psalm 18. In Psalm 18, verse 27, David said, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. Psalm 18, if you want to read that sometime in its entirety, it's a psalm where David cries out for God to deliver him from his enemies, namely Saul and his men. So it shouldn't surprise us, how does David describe his God at the beginning of the psalm? Psalm 18, verses 2 and 3, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. If you've ever witnessed a lifeguard heading out into the ocean or into a pool and rescue someone from drowning, Well, you've already seen an image, to some degree, of a deliverer. It's the picture of someone who is much stronger, who has a greater ability to deliver you when you are at your utter weakness, when you're desperate, when there's no other hope unless that lifeguard grabs you. Left all to yourself, you're sunk to the bottom. But in the arms of the Almighty, we have a deliverer who not only gives us life, but he gives us life eternally with him. You see, if you read your Old Testament, I want to encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, don't stay in Romans for 25 years. There's 66 books of the Bible. That left side of your Bible sometimes gets neglected by a lot of Christians. Friends, I want to encourage you. I know it can be difficult. I know it can be overwhelming. But find a Christian who seems to know their Bible well and read your Old Testament as well. You see, the theme of salvation in God's merciful act of rescuing his people stretches way back in time. The story of the Exodus is one of the dominant examples throughout the Old Testament. As Israel was held captive, Under Pharaoh and the Egyptians, God would pronounce judgment through ten plagues on this powerful army. After God had revealed his power through the plagues of judgment and after raising up Moses to lead them out, he would eventually guide his people through the parted Red Sea, plunder and destroy the Egyptians, and then bring his people out into the wilderness. Or consider another well-known act of deliverance in the Old Testament, namely the exile from the Babylonian captivity. After Judah, the southern kingdom, had been sent off into captivity by the Babylonians, God promised that after 70 years, he would come back for his people. He would deliver them and bring them back to their land. Many of y'all know this prophecy. You just never knew it was found in this context. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you 
and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back. That's the words of a rescuer, a deliverer to the place from which I sent you into exile. There's many other examples in the Old Testament, but those are two of the big mountain peaks of God's deliverance in his people's lives. Well, here in Mark, chapter 1, verse 1, Mark tells us that the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does the word gospel mean? Come on, guys. Yes! Seven months of preaching, wham! We got it. We got it. The gospel. It's the good news about Jesus Christ. And Mark says this good news began when ancient prophecies about a deliverance had finally begun to come to fruition. Specifically, Mark alludes to three Old Testament passages and centers our attention on how these passages were pointing to a messenger who would be sent by God to prepare the way for the arrival of God himself. Look at Mark 1, verses 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. You see, Mark presents a tapestry of Old Testament scriptures to show that as what is being said about the gospel of Jesus is grounded first in the authority and trustworthiness of God's word. In the Old Testament scriptures. That's why he begins verse 2, did you notice? By stating, as it is written. As we study Mark's gospel together, we'll pick up on how many times when Jesus goes toe-to-toe with the religious leaders, how does he refute them? How does he correct them? How does he teach them? As it is written. When the scriptures speak, God speaks. But you also need to notice What Mark is saying is that the good news about Jesus isn't somehow an afterthought in God's mind. It's not plan B or heaven's insurance plan because God's first idea didn't work out. No, God's good news for his people, for the world to hear, stretched all the way back in ancient prophecies a long, long time ago. You'll notice that Mark conflates Two different prophecies, Malachi 3, verse 1, and Isaiah 40, verse 3. And then it seems like he alludes to Exodus 23, 20. Just so you don't have to turn there and have your Bible study in the middle of a sermon, let me just give you a summary of what those three different passages are alluding to. Exodus 23, 20 contains God's promise to send his messenger before the Israelites on their exodus through the desert to Canaan. In other words, I'm going to get you out of Egypt and I'm going to lead you in the wilderness and take you to the promised land. That was a promise he would make for them. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, it speaks of a second deliverance, a greater exodus that would be a final deliverance prepared for God's people. And then in Malachi 3, verse 1, you can go back and listen to those sermons or you can take my word for it in this one sentence. Malachi 3.1 warns that God will send a messenger to prepare the way before the arrival of the coming day of God's judgment. You see, the purpose of these prophecies, though, are to bring good news 
about a promise that had been long awaited for. The promise or the good news wasn't that man would now go out and try to seek God and worship him however they wanted to, to kind of figure it out on their own. Now, if you look at Israel's history, you saw how futile and destructive that was. No, the promise here was ultimately about a superior deliverance, a greater exodus where God would come down to his people and save them from their sin. Friends, he came to reconstitute a people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood who would declare his praises and bring him glory. But who was the messenger that Malachi spoke of in his prophecy? Who is the voice in Isaiah's prophecy of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord? It was mysterious in Malachi's day who it would be. But Mark tells us, Mark 1, verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, the John spoken about here, so you're not confused. This is not John, one of the 12 disciples. This is John that most of us might be uh, more familiar with as John the Baptist. See, we got something in common, right? No, totally kidding. That's not a good argument to be a Baptist. If you pull that, you're going to get whipped in a debate. Don't do that. But John the Baptist or John the Baptizer is what would characterize his ministry. In the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, there is a lot more information about this unique man, about his parents, his birth, and the purposes for which God had sent him. But here in Mark's gospel, like he likes to do, he wants to cut in line. He doesn't want to waste time. He wants to get right to the point. Mark wants his readers to understand that John is this messenger, this significant, important messenger that who would initiate the eschaton, the last days. One who is described here in Isaiah's prophecy as the voice. The voice, not just any voice, the voice who would prepare the way for the Lord. That means John is the prophet Malachi was speaking of in his day, the last Old Testament prophet that would announce the arrival of a promised Messiah. We know that from the end of Malachi's prophecy in chapter 4, he would be an Elijah-like figure who would preach, and he would preach with authority. He would preach with power and call a wayward nation of Israel to repentance before it was too late. We see this clearly in the next two verses, right? Look at verses 5 and 6. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. John's public appearance in Israel may have started off in the quiet corner of a Judean Starbucks in the wilderness, but the time would come when his ministry would hit the press. They recall Drew Smith and her colleagues from the Times record, the Jews' Times record, to find their way to the River Jordan and make sure that everyone in town knew that this bold preacher was declaring something in this Judean wilderness. He was a unique-looking man. Not exactly the fashion statement you want to make at prom your senior year, but he was heralding a message that drew the attention of the masses. He had a prophet-like authority. When he preached, thunder 
would rumble in the people's hearts. And as he was eating his locust protein bars and pretzel sticks of honey, John's voice would be heard and life would never be the same again. God had sent his last messenger, his last prophet, to prepare the way for the Lord. John stood firm in the wilderness in his unique and tacky but appropriate wardrobe. But John was fulfilling something. He was fulfilling a calling that he had been divinely ordained to do. He was born for this. He was set apart for this. He was to be the forerunner for the Messiah. People came in droves. But how did they respond? Many would respond to his message quite favorably. They came going, I'll confess my sins. Baptize me in that dirty Jordan River. I want the Messiah. I need the Messiah. I'm going to renounce all ties with dead religion. I'm going to renounce any confidence in self-righteousness or my ability to clean myself up before God. And instead, through John's baptism, they would publicly pledge their faith in the Messiah that was to come. You see, when they went down into the waters, they were symbolically turning their backs on their dead religion, on their false sense of salvation that they had once believed in. And coming out of the waters, soaking wet with this strange and odd prophet, they were also symbolically turning to the Lord that Isaiah's prophecy had spoken about. The one who would cleanse them, not just from scabbed up knees, not just from uh, a wound on the flesh with water in a river. No, the baptism did not save anyone. The baptism didn't wash away anything. But the one John's baptism was preparing them for would clean them from the inside out. The one that would take them in his own arms, tenderly and courageously, like a good shepherd. But there were also many that came out to the masses, to the John the Baptist crusade, and they kept their distance. They listened to John, they watched what he was preaching. They heard people confessing their sins, their dirtiness, renouncing their dead religion. And they looked at them with disgust. They looked down on them. Ah, spiritual riffraff. To go down the River Jordan, renouncing your dead religion and your self-righteousness and, and by this man, of all people, In fact, these men, the Pharisees in particular, would send spies to inquire. Who are you, sir? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? They weren't that interested in really who he was. They were doing what all the Pharisees would eventually do. Out of envy and jealousy, they were trying to undermine God's man and his ministry. You see, they stayed on the outer banks watching these dirty sinners renounce their reliance on any other religion and on their righteousness. And they stared in suspicion. Friends, just because someone challenges you in what you've always believed, do not write them off as a heretic or a spiritual kook. Friends, one of the most loving things God can ever do for a people is send them a preacher who will tell them the truth. One of the ways God can pronounce judgment on a people is give them a preacher that will tickle their ears. Friends, you don't need fire and brimstone to understand judgment. 
just look at the phony preachers who have phony and fake churches that tickle their ears week in and week out and do not say, thus saith the Lord. That is judgment. You see, when God raises up a prophet, when God raises up his preachers, they preach the word in season and out of season, and they reprove and correct, and they do so with faithfulness to the scriptures. Friends, if the Lord ever sends you a brother or sister in Christ, that when they enter the room, it makes you feel a little uncomfortable because you know they're holy. They're righteous. They're godly. The aroma of heaven seems to radiate off of them. Don't avoid them. God may have sent you a brother or sister in Christ that might make you feel uncomfortable in your sin, but it's good for you. It's good for you. It's God's love for you. Because when we walk in darkness and hang out with those who do, we lie and do not practice the truth. Your best friends ought to be those who will tell you the most truth, and they will love you deeply even when you're at your worst. That's the kind of friends you want, and that's the kind of church we should want here at Chaffee Crossing. I pray that we at CCBC, every time we gather together on the Lord's Day, will have our hearts prepared to hear God's Word. Listen, sometimes the car ride here is filled with chaos, sin, slander, and cold-heartedness, and guess what? Jesus already knows. It's not like Jesus is standing at the door passing out the bulletin. He saw what was going on in the car. He saw what you were looking at on the computer last night. He saw the conversation you were in last Friday. Listen, come to him. Confess your sins. He already knows. He's the only Savior that can transform our sinful hearts. He loves us. and That's why he sends us preachers, as he sent a prophet in that day to tell the people the truth. But who is it that actually willingly desires to hear the truth? They want to obey the truth. They want to support the truth. They want to love the truth. If people came in droves to hear God's, John's message, What actually separated the people who went down into the river versus the ones who stayed on the shore in scoffing suspicion? Because the last time I checked, the Bible says we're all sinners. So the difference is not one was a sinner and one was not. The difference was not how many sins they committed. The difference is what they did with the conviction in their hearts which leads to the second and final point. Point number two, who were those with humble and repentant hearts? Look at verses seven and eight. It says, and he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Here, John now explains to us something about the superior power and superior ministry of the Messiah over him. John basically says two things about this Messiah that he was to prepare the way for. He is mightier than John. This doesn't mean he could bench press more than John. I mean, that's certainly theologically true. But he was more powerful, stronger, mightier, more impressive. And, notice verse 8, he will baptize not with water, like John was doing, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the triune God. The Spirit who inspired the Scriptures. The Spirit who Ezekiel's prophecy said that one day would dwell into the hearts of God's new covenant people. A people whose hearts have been cleansed, not with water from a river, but the cleansing power of God by the regeneration and washing of the Holy Spirit, as we heard from Titus chapter 
three, those who Jesus one day would say are born again by the Spirit. You see, far from John looking at the masses of people lining up the Jordan River as some sort of self-promoting, egotistical ministry scam like Kenneth Copeland, John does the total opposite. He's not amazed by how big of a crowd that is coming. He's not caring about how many numbers of people going down into the river. You see, John's concern is not how many people are coming to hear him. John's concern is not even what people think of him. I mean, look at the way he's dressed. Look at what he eats. You can see he's not trying to dress to impress. He's there for a mission. John's burning desire is not to make crowds happy. It's not to fill chairs. His desire is that the Messiah he was preparing the way for would get all the fan mail. He would get all the attention. He would get all of the glory. He would be exalted and sought after and realized among sinners that he is the one they should go to, not John. John was a voice, but the Messiah was the word. Big difference. The best of preachers will only be a voice, but there is only one preacher that surpasses all of them, and you should give your life to him. The word, the logos, who became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, John viewed himself in such a small light in comparison to the Savior that he felt he was unworthy to do even the humblest of tasks, like caring for the footwear of the Messiah. Friends, I think John embodies what every preacher of the gospel should aspire to in his own ministry. To preach and exalt Christ's name so that sinners might be saved. And in doing so, his name would be forgotten in the process. Friends, that should be all of our desires. That we should preach the gospel die and be forgotten. That is a worthwhile ambition. To the wind with our names, to the wind with reputation to some degree, to the wind with trying to fulfill some hidden purpose in your life, preach Christ crucified. Preach the glories of the gospel and do not care if anyone gives you credit. Because even the best of preachers, the most faithful of women, the most faithful of men are simply a voice. We're just messengers. We're just vessels. We fade like the flower and the grass, but the word of God stands forever. Brothers and sisters, this should permeate everything in our life. This kind of attitude, our parenting, our marriages, our jobs, our schools, our ministries, our sports teams, even how we use social media. Friends, ask yourself this question. Do you make it your goal in life to have others say great things about you and do great things for you? Or do you make it your goal in life to have others say great things about Christ and to see Christ honored through you? Which one are you pursuing with your life? Which one is your heart most adamantly excited about? Whose glory are you really most concerned about? You or him? John would say in John 3.30, what I hope we would all make our prayer, he must increase, I must decrease. He must increase. I must decrease. Friends, who are those with humble and repentant hearts? It's those whose hearts have been convicted of their sins 
those convictions that God has brought about by the power of the Spirit is made visible when we agree with God we are wrong and agree with God that he is right. That's what confession is. That's what that word actually means. It means to wholeheartedly agree with what God says about your sin. It means to take sides with God. Instead of hiding from God or pushing back on God, you take sides with God and go, yep, I'm evil. Yep, that was wrong. Yep, I blew it. I agree with you, God. That's confession. That's biblical confession. You acknowledge it with your lips to God and you acknowledge it with your lips to one another. You want to know the fruits or one of the fruits of a humble and mature Christian? They are quick to confess their sins and call them for what they are. They are quick to confess their sins and to call it for what they are. No sugarcoating, no blame shifting, no excuses. You look in God's word, you see what it says, and you agree with God. What is in you is displeasing to him. But repentance is not exactly the same thing as confession. Repentance is the other side of the coin of spirit-wrought conviction. This is the part you need to kind of lean in because this is ultra-applicable. What is repentance? It's the intentional, listen to my wording, it's the intentional and decisive choice to change one's mind about a sinful belief or a sinful behavior. I'll say that again. It's the intentional and decisive choice to change one's mind about a sinful belief or a sinful behavior, which therefore leads to a change of belief or a change of behavior that pleases God. John would say elsewhere in the Gospels that sinners, all of us, are called to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Matthew 3, verse 8. Repentance is a word I think in many churches, they've either been underused or scared to use. But I think we at CCBC need to take ownership of our own ministry and start thinking carefully, does our ministry, is it marked by members who are known for repenting of their sins? Is our ministry known by a constant agonizing to turn our back on sin and turn our face to God. You see, if you don't, long enough, this is what churches sound like. Well, nobody's perfect. I was born that way. That's just the way he is. You don't know who I'm married to. Stop being so judgmental. Hey, this sin is really not that big of a deal. Friends, there will always be dangers in the church of being legalistic. And you always have a few in the church that are spiritual nitpickers. They try to be the police for Jesus. And we should avoid these type of self-righteous and prideful tendencies. We should be very careful not to become so preoccupied with other people's sin that we can't see our own sin first. But brothers and sisters, don't swing the pendulum the other way. Repentance is not what a few radical Christians do. Repentance is what all real Christians do. Let me say that again. Because I didn't hear amen. I'm hoping you're probably saying ouch. Repentance is not what a few radical Christians do. Repentance is what all real Christians do. John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, the apostles throughout the New Testament, they preached repentance. You see, repentance is crucial for our understanding of the Christian life. Repentance is crucial when we're telling people the gospel. Some people have asked, is repentance necessary for salvation? Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. Does this mean that we are forgiven on the basis of our repentance? Not at all. Repentance and faith are both 
necessary for salvation, but they are related to justification in different ways. Faith alone is the instrument by which Christ is received and rested on as Savior. Justification is by faith, not by repentance. But faith, and therefore justification, cannot exist where there is no repentance. Repentance is as necessary to salvation by faith as the ankle is to walking. The one who does not act, the one does not act apart from the other. I cannot come to Christ in faith without turning from sin and repentance. Faith is trusting in Christ. Repentance is turning from sin. They are two sides of the same coin to all who belong to Jesus. Friends, I've got books on this I'm going to hand out in the coming months. I want our church to be steeped in a biblical understanding of repentance and that by God's grace, we would all bear fruit, keeping with repentance. Well, he goes on to verse 8. Did you notice what John says? He says, I have baptized you with water, but he, the Messiah, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Well, here in verses 7 and 8, John is referring back to the one he was sent to prepare the way for. And who is it? Look back closely to verse 3. Look at verse 3 again closely. If you miss this in Mark's gospel, you don't understand the rest of the gospel. This is who John was preparing the way for. I'm sorry, Mark. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. This is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40. Who is the Lord in Isaiah chapter 40? It's the creator of the universe, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. This is Yahweh. This is the one true and living God he is preparing the way for. That means that John is the forerunner who would prepare the way for God. And Mark applies this divine identity to Jesus. This is one of the key passages in the Gospels where we see the deity of Jesus Christ on full display. You see, John viewed himself as an undeserving and lowly prophet because of the wrath that was coming upon the world from God to sinners. He was calling people to repent of their sins before it's too late. Put their faith in the one that he was pairing the way for, the one who could forgive them of their sins if they confess and repent. To my non-Christian friends here today, you need to understand that the Jesus we are speaking about at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church is not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is God in human flesh. Jesus came to this earth to save sinners and to transform them by his spirit from the inside out. That's why verse 8, he says, he's coming and he's going to baptize you with the power and presence of God. You see, the Holy Spirit indwells every person who turns from their sins and trusts in him. Every true born-again Christian has God's Spirit living within them. And notice that he's called the Holy Spirit. You want to know one of the fundamental differences between a Christian and a non-Christian? One is becoming more holy like Jesus, and the other one isn't. Because the Holy Spirit will make followers of Jesus look more like Jesus. CCBC, we should be a church that calls people to repentance. Because Jesus called people to repentance. John the Baptist called people to repentance. You see, Christ would come, he would live and he would die on a cross, bearing the wrath of God that John was telling people to flee from. He died as a sacrifice, as a substitute. And then three days later, God raised him from the dead. And the Bible says if we turn from our sins, renouncing all confidence in our flesh or dead religion, and put our faith in Jesus, 
he will give us the Holy Spirit and we will be granted eternal life. Friends, why should we emphasize repentance in the ministry at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church? Because Jesus is Lord. You can't have Jesus as Savior and ignore the fact that he is Lord. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Who is Jesus Christ? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son of God. Does your life show evidence you are repenting and trusting in him? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your faithfulness that you did fulfill your word by sending the messenger, the voice who would prepare the way for the Messiah. Lord, I pray that you would use us as a ministry that we are made up not of people who simply call themselves Christians, but people who call themselves repenters. Lord, teach us how to do that. We know this is a grace given to us by you. Lord, we pray for anyone here who doesn't know this Messiah, that your spirit would be at work in their hearts and you would call them to yourself. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.